Well, good morning. Let's uh, pray together this morning. Father, we uh, have gathered in this place as your body, your church. We've come to worship you and to listen to your word, to let your word speak to our hearts and our souls. We pray that you would do that in a powerful way this morning, especially as we talk about this issue of unity, Lord, in our midst. Would we just open our minds and our hearts and let you challenge us and encourage us and change us, transform us as we uh, listen to your truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but churches, like people, have an emotional tank, or maybe in churches it's a spiritual vitality tank. And uh, you have in churches people who can add to that spiritual vitality or detract from it. You have people who kind of feed into the the bucket, add to the bucket in a sense. Those people who are encouraging and those people who are positive and those people who are constructive and those people who uh, are are prayerful and they're they're just the the people who you love to have around because they're just adding to the, the emotional energy, the positive force, the, the spiritual vitality of the church. And then you have another group of people and uh, they take out of that bucket. Uh, they're critical or they're negative. They're always complaining or they're divisive. Um, they just drain the bucket. Some of them even punch holes in, 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 in the bucket. Want to be a place that puts into the bucket not uh, takes out. So my question for you this morning is what kind of person are you? Are, are you one of those people who, who adds to the vitality and the emotional energy and the positive uh, uh, movement of the church? Or you're, are you one of those people who drains it because you're always complaining? Always uh, finding that thing that's wrong. Always unhappy. Which uh, person are you? We're in a new series um, on the book of 1 Corinthians called The Broken Kind of Beautiful. Uh, It's a study of the letter that Paul, the apostle, uh, one of the early church leaders, wrote to a a church in the city of Corinth that he had actually planted. The church... Uh, was established pretty early, and this letter was written about 50 A.D., and it's in response to letters sent to Paul. The church is an interesting church. It's a church that is very, very gifted, has a lot going on it, and it's a church that's very, very diverse because Corinth was on the trade routes, and people inside of Corinth were very transient, so a lot of diversity in the church. But it was a church that was, in a lot of ways, very, very broken. Um, lots of issues going on. And one of the things, it, it was a church that was sliced and diced with division. I mean, this is a church that knew how to fight. Paul is writing this letter to heal some of the brokenness in the church, to try to help them become what God wants them to be. I mean, God knows they're broken, but he also, man, this church is part of his bride. He wants it to, to be beautiful. Paul is trying to help them get there. 
one of the first issues he deals with is this issue of unity. Um, he wants them to be a unified force in the city of Corinth. So he begins his letter, uh, the issues of his letter there. I think we need to listen to Paul this morning. And, and not because I think uh, Waterstone has divisions or factions or, or we're fragmenting or, or being fractured. I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, Waterstone is a very healthy church, one of the healthiest I've been in. Not, there's not a lot of infighting. But there's always the potential. Because all of us here are, are broken people. We have this sinful inclination in us. We can cause fights. And, and probably we've been in fights. We know what that's like, right? We, we have the scars where we've been beat up a little bit, or maybe we even cause scars for other people. Uh, all of us have the potential. So what uh, Paul has to say this morning, I think, is important for us uh, to take hold of. So the first question I want to wrestle with, though, before we get into the text, is this question. Why is unity so important? I mean, if you go to the New Testament, one of the things you discover that the early church talked about unity all the time. In fact, Jesus, uh, right before he goes to be crucified, is meeting with his disciples and praying over them. And the thing he prays for most as he prays over them is that they would be unified. And in a in a sense, is praying for us that, that we would be unified. I mean, unity is a big deal. And the question is, why? Why? Well, well, two reasons. One comes from that prayer in John chapter 17, verses 21 and 22. I'm sorry, 22 and 23. This is Jesus praying over the disciples. And he says, I have given them, the disciples, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. So there it is. He's praying that the church would be unified. But notice that he says, tells them why. And this is amazing. It's convicting, actually. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying that uh, your unity, how you guys get along, disciples, is going to be the evidence of the reality of who I am. In other words, if you don't get along, then people have the right to look at you and question whether Jesus was real or not. Our unity becomes the evidence of the reality of Jesus. That's a big deal. Because what it means is that if people look at the church and we're fighting, they have every right to walk away from that and say, well, you know, this whole Christianity thing, that's bogus. I mean, look at them. And Jesus is praying that they'd be able to look at us and because we get along so well, because we're so unified, because we're on the same page, because we're working together, because we're the community, people look at that and say, that couldn't happen unless this Jesus thing had changed people. <laughs> he really is who he said he was. It's huge. There's a, a second reason I think unity is so important. And that is because there's huge power in unity and great weakness in discord. Um, do you know what a laser is, why a laser is so powerful? All a laser is light that, in a sense, has been unified, has been put to the same purpose, kind of made to march together. That's what makes a laser. And when a light is unified, it's, it is incredible. It can cut through steel. It can do amazing things. 
But, but when we're in the hearing, it's just a verse that just lights the room, but there's not as much power to it. There's, there's an incredible amount of power when a community is unified and centered around one thing. Um, there's an interesting book out called Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown. It's the story, a uh, true story, of a rowing team uh, that in 1936 went to the Berlin Olympics and won. The college rowing team. What was interesting, you would think um, that this team would have been from what, Harvard or Yale or Princeton. I mean, they have the heritage and the, the, the experience of rowing. That's not where this team was from. You know, it was from the University of Washington. And, and this team was made up of uh, a bunch of kids who grew up on a farm and, and grew up in logging towns and, and in shipyards. And, and the team was incredibly diverse and different personalities. And, uh, you know, some were big kids, some were small kids. But these eight kids won the gold medal in 1936. Uh, Brown writes this about this group of guys, and, and I think this is a great description of the church. He writes, Races are won by crews, and great crews are carefully balanced blends of both physical abilities and personality types. A crew composed entirely of eight amped-up, overtly aggressive oarsmen will often degenerate into a dysfunctional bra in a boat or exhaust itself in the first leg of a long race. Similarly, a boatload of quiet but strong introverts may never find the common core of fiery resolve that causes the boat to explode past its competitors when all seems lost. Good crews are good blends of personalities. Someone to lead the charge, someone to hold something in reserve, someone to pick a fight, someone to make peace, someone to think things through, someone to charge ahead without thinking. Somehow all this must mesh. That's the steepest challenge. Even after the right mixture is found, each man or woman in the boat must recognize his or her place in the fabric of the crew, accept it, and accept the others as they are. It is an exquisite thing when it all comes together in just the right way. And I, I think that is a great description of what the church is supposed to be. All of us are different. God has kind of gifted us in different ways and on purpose. And, and the expectation is out of all that diversity is, is to come this incredibly powerful unity. And, and when the church acts as this unified force, it changes the community, it changes the city, it, it, it changes the world. Because there's incredible power in, in unity. So it's, it's not a secondary issue. It's something we, we desperately have to pay attention to. So Paul makes his appeal. In chapter 1, verse 10, he, he tells the Corinthians they need to be united. Look at the appeal. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you... Be perfectly united in mind and thought. He says I, I, this word perfectly united is actually an interesting word. It was a word that uh, is a medical term that describes setting a broken bone where the bone is fractured and splintered and, and you're putting it back together. 
Okay, and it's used here as a metaphor to talk about mending relationships, putting relationships back together so they're, they're whole and healed. The other place that uh, word is used is in Mark chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, Jesus is coming up to James and John, and James and John are sitting on the shore, and they're mending their nets, their fishing nets. They were fishermen. And the word for mending there is the same word used here. It's this picture of them fixing the holes in their net, making them whole, because a holy net doesn't catch any fish. (laughs) They have to be unified to work. And and what's fascinating is is Paul is making this this appeal for, for perfect unity, but I want you to notice the basis for the appeal. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, part of what's going on here is Paul is appealing to to Jesus to, to infuse authority into what he has to say so that they listen to him. But there's something deeper going on here. What he's really getting at is he's telling them the basis of their unity is the fact that they all have this common relationship with Jesus. What brings about unity in the church is not uh, a common culture or common social status or class or a common language or a common race. It's it's not common education. It's not because we're all the the same color. Uh, The unity in the church has nothing to do with that. What, What unifies us, what puts us together is that all of us have this commitment to Jesus Christ. And when you have a commitment to Jesus Christ, it changes you at the very core of who you are. It changes your identity. And thus everything else about you becomes secondary. Or before you're after your own ego and your own agenda, now you're after Jesus and His agenda. And and now your own ego is set aside. Well, that's true of all those who are committed to Jesus. And that's what brings them together. The common commitment to Jesus actually changes our fundamental identity and thus our relationship to each other. It's it's like a triangle. Jesus is at the top of the triangle and we're, we're on the two sides. And if we're part of the triangle, guess what? The two sides aren't just connected to Jesus, but it creates this connection between us. And notice this, that if you think you're getting closer and more intimate and falling deeper in love with Jesus, but you're not also becoming more committed to those people who are walking the journey with you, and I'm not sure you're getting closer to Jesus. Because the closer you get to Him, the more infused you become in the community, the closer the two pieces come. Our unity is based on a common relationship with Jesus. And it changes us. And because we both have an allegiance to him, it it changes how we get along. Let me illustrate. Imagine (laughs) that that you and I are going at it and uh, I'm trying to fix your screwy theological ideas, but you're not listening to my brilliant wisdom. Or maybe it's not about theology that we're fighting. Maybe it's about the selection of songs or the volume or or maybe it's how we structure the kids. Anyway, uh, we're going at it, and this is not the first time we've gone at it. And at that moment, it's getting a little heated, and you're getting a little agitated. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, I've always questioned your godliness. Now I'm beginning to question even your common sense. And uh, you're kind of feeling the same. 
and we're just fighting. We can't seem to resolve it. And we're going at it, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears. I mean, he's the white robe, brilliant, blinding, you know, and he speaks, and his voice is like the sound of Niagara Falls. And, and he asks me, Nick, do you love me? And I'm going to go say, well, yeah. And then he asks you, he says, do you love me? And you say, well, yeah. Then fix this. I will give you enough grace to be patient. I will give you grace to forgive. I will give you grace to recalibrate how important you think these issues are. But if you love me, fix this. What do you think would happen? Do you think we'd fix it? Think we'd start getting along? Yeah. Well, that's the point. We have this common relationship. And that relationship with Jesus, it, it, it changes our relationship with each other. Did you catch that? Notice what he says here. He says, I appeal to you, what? Brothers and sisters. Now, are they brothers and sisters physically? No. The, the, the church in Corinth was incredibly diverse. All these people were from all over the Mediterranean world. They, they weren't common in terms of their ancestry. They didn't all grow up in Corinth. They, don't have, they have no connection. But he calls them brothers and sisters. Why are they brothers and sisters? Because, because they're, they're linked to Jesus. And Jesus changes who you are and your identity. And now that means you and I become, if we have Jesus as our our, our common commitment, our common king, that means you and I are linked by spiritual blood. Spiritual ancestry. What happens to us vertically changes our relationships horizontally. It's kind of like this, the, the, this equation. Uh, um, the equation is Jesus makes us brothers and sisters, and because we're brothers and sisters, the result has to be unity. We have to be on the same page. So I, I want to make you a little uncomfortable for a moment. I want you to look around. I want you to really look at the people sitting around you, not just, just who's next to you because you probably know them, but uh, the other people in front and behind you. I don't look at me. Look around. I want you to look at the people you're looking at very differently. I want you to think to yourself, you know what? I might not know their name, but we're brother and sister. We're, we're connected. We're linked with spiritual blood. What, what, <laughs> what connects us is not that a bunch of strangers showed up in the same room for this same event at this same hour this morning. That's not what connects us. What connects us is that we came here because we have a common commitment to this, this King Jesus who's radically changed our lives. And because of that, we're in this together. And that means we have to see each other differently. You're not looking at just a disconnected stranger sitting two aisles behind you. Whether you realize it or not, there's more connection, more substantial connection with them than maybe all the other people you're going to encounter this week. Because you have Jesus in common. Now, if that's true, that should radically 
impact how we treat each other. There's no reason the scriptures continually come back to this, this command that we are to love one another. And I think scripture would argue that spiritual blood may be thicker than human blood. We're to be that committed to each other. So Paul says, look, because of this common relationship with Jesus, your brothers and sisters, and because you're brothers and sisters, there's got to be this incredible unity in the church. There, there should be no divisions, no factions, no fighting. How, how, you can't do that. And he really begins to go after two issues. There's all kinds of things that cause disunity in a church, uh, fighting in the body. Sometimes it's personality, oftentimes it's self-interest, sometimes it's ego, uh, sometimes it's race or ethnicity or nationality or personal preferences or likes or dislikes. or I mean, there's all kinds of things people fight about. But Paul picks out two issues that are, are causing part of the disunity in Corinth. Okay, and the two issues are, are, are ideas and leaders. Uh, I'll show you what I mean. Let's, let's talk about the ideas. He's saying, look, uh, unity means there's not to be any divisions around ideas. Go back to, to verse 10. Um, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united, what, in mind and thought. And he's basically arguing you, should, you guys should be saying the same things and you should be thinking the same things. You should have this common worldview, this common way of thinking about Christ, this common way of speaking about Christ. Raises the question, though, what is the connection between our ideas and unity in the church? Um, I want to give you a little communication theory here. Um, oh man, did I mess it up again? No, I didn't. Cool. Okay, little communication theory. theory. This is actually called a balance theory in uh, the communication world of persuasion. But it's really interesting. It's been helpful for me to understand this. Imagine this is me. Lots of imagination. And imagine this is you. More imagination. And we have a relationship with each other that's reciprocal or goes back and forth. The balance theory that says that our relationship with each other, whether it's a plus or a minus or how deep it is or how well we get along, is impacted by how we think about issues external to ourselves. And this is on a continuum because the more important the issue is, the more it impacts our relationship. But let's take a silly one. Say we're talking about who is the greatest football player in the history of the NFL. And I, I think that John Elway is the greatest football. So I, that's a plus. John, it's John Elway. But you don't agree with me. You think it's some other cat named Manning or whatever his name is. So it's a minus. Now, if I'm a plus towards the issue and you're a minus towards the issue, what does that make us toward each other? Minus. 
But say that's not true. Say that not only do I think John Elway's the greatest player in the world, but you think John Elway is the greatest player in the world. So this isn't a minus for you. This is a plus. Guess what that does? If we agree on the issue, it creates a plus between us. Isn't that interesting? Now, that's not a big deal until these issues become important. Let's, uh, well, churches used to fight about it. Let's take, say it was alcohol. And say, uh, I thought it was a negative. Christians shouldn't drink it. And you out, were out of a tradition where you taught, you were taught it's okay. What does that do to our relationship? Well, I'm a minus, you're a plus. So now we're not pluses towards each other, we're, we're a minus. Or say, I think it's, it's uh, wrong to drink, and you think it's wrong to drink, so minus, minus. Oh, that's a plus, because we agree. Now, here's the deal. What, 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 Paul, what Paul is saying is, don't you understand that if you guys differ on these really important issues, that's going to impact your relationship between you. So I want you to agree on the really important stuff. So that it becomes a plus and a plus. So that you speak the same about who Jesus is and you think the same about your Christian worldview. Now, this <laughs> give you an example of where this is a little trivial. But it really makes an impact. We used to have a youth pastor, and this is silly, but he was a huge Raiders fan. And this was back in the day, a long time ago, when the Raiders actually were worth, you know, playing. Um, and he was always talking about how great the Raiders are. And if you're around, most everybody's a Bronco fan. Well, he was so intent about the Raiders that it began to hurt his relationship with people because he was insane. I finally had to go to him and I said, look, dude, back off the Raiders stuff because it's hurting your relationship with other people. I mean, I don't care whether you like the Raiders or don't like the Raiders, but just don't talk about it because it's getting in the way of your ministry. You see, ideas make a difference. They impact our unity or disunity. Ever think about why? The reason is, is because we attach ideas to ourselves, to our identity. Our ideas become an extension of who we are. So when I have an idea and you disagree with it, man, that attacks me and I feel threatened. So what do I do? I try to convince you to think like I do because if I can get you to think like I do, that makes me feel better about myself. About seven years ago, I'm sitting in a counselor's office and Harv, my counselor, says to me, he says, you know, Nick, you don't really have to get everybody to agree with you about what you think. Do you know, your ideas are not you. It's okay if maybe they disagree. It's just your way of controlling everybody. And I thought, oh, Harv, shut up. It was this incredibly transformative moment for me. 
because I realized he was absolutely right. I went through life trying to convince everybody to think like I think, because if I can get them to think about things the way I think, I felt better about myself. And he told me, you know, that's kind of stupid. Your ideas aren't you. That's been incredibly freeing. I, I'm not there yet. I still fall into the trap. But, but just to think, you know, it's okay if you think that way. It's okay if you're wrong. It's okay. <laughs> you don't have to agree with me. <laughs> yeah, that's what they're thinking. <laughs> but there's some freedom in there. I don't have to make people think like I think. Um, say, okay, well, Nick, that, that's all great, but does that mean then that we all have to think alike? Well, not completely at all. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, in fact, if you go through the rest of the book, you discover that's not his, he's not arguing that, that um, unanimity means uniformity. Now, there are some people who think, yeah, we have to agree on everything uh, um, because God is truth, right? And if God is truth, then you're either 100% right or you're 100% wrong. There is no in-between. There, there are no gray areas with God. He has it all figured out. Uh, um, you know, he, he's, he, he, <laughs> he's not confused or unsure so why should we be? Well, well, simply because of the fact that we're not God. And we don't have it all figured out. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says we see through a mirror dimly. Which means there are, are going to be all kinds of grays in our life because we're not going to get, we don't have infinite minds and understand all the nuances and all information where God does. So, so, to expect that everybody in the church has to agree with everything, I think misses the point. In fact, Paul later on is going to talk about the fact that we're all, when we become believers in Jesus Christ, we're all baptized into one body. We all become part of him. But then argues that all of us are different, gifted differently, and have different talents. And that's by design because God wants to use that diversity to accomplish his purposes. So he, he wants unanimity on some things, but allows for great diversity on other things. I like to think about it like this. There's a core at the center that we are to agree on. These are the things that have to do with the very essence of our relationship with Jesus. And I think Paul's saying, when I'm talking about speaking about the same and having the same mind, he's talking about agreeing on those core things. Uh, the deity of the Christ, salvation by grace, uh, um, the Trinity, those things. But then there's another circle of things that are important but aren't so essential. These are the essential things. These are the non-essential things. There's a famous saying that people attribute to Augustine, who was a church father. It actually didn't come from him, but some obscure uh, priest. And it goes like this, in essentials, there must be unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In other words, he's saying love should cover all of this. 
On the essential things, there's got to be agreement. There's got to be unity. On non-essential things, there's liberty. It doesn't mean they're not important. It just means you're free to believe what you need to believe. But over all of it, there's got to be love. Okay, you say, Nick, that's great. That makes lots of sense. But how do we know what's essential and what's not essential? Right? Well, I think the question is, what is foundational to our relationship with Jesus is essential? And what's not foundational to our relationship with Jesus may be important, but it's not essential. At Waterstone, we talk about agreeing to disagree. And what we basically say, there's a number of things we to agree, agree to agree on. And those are the things you'll find in our doctrinal statement. And they're big issues. Salvation by grace, the, the deity of Christ, the reality of the Holy Spirit, those fundamental things that we agree to agree on. And then we say, and if it's not in our doctrinal statement... It's not essential, so we agree to disagree. Now, that doesn't mean they're not important. There's a lot of things that are important that aren't in our doctrinal statement, but they're not going to impact our relationship with Jesus. Now, note, if you're here and you're unconvinced about the reality of who Jesus is, man, it's great, and we want to be a safe place where you can question everything we believe. That's fine. But if you're a member here, we're asking you, buy in with us on the essential things. Well, what then are, are some of the non-essential things. Because there's all kinds of things that are important. You have to have convictions about, but they're not things you fight about. They're not things that you break fellowship over. Let me give you some of them. Politics. Whether you're red or blue or green. Is that important? Well, yeah, it's important. But do you fight over it? No. Do you break fellowship over it? Is it more important than your essential unity that you find in Christ? No, not even close. You don't break fellowship. How about some doctrinal things? Whether you're pre-trib or post-trib, you believe Jesus comes back before the rapture or after the rapture? Oh, not essential. Important for some people. Whether you're a dispensationalist or a kingdom theologian, I happen to be kingdom-oriented. I think it's right. I think dispensationalists are nuts, but is it nuts? But is it important? No, you don't break fellowship over it. All kinds of doctrinal stuff. Or how about uh, controversial issues? How about creation and evolution? Is there freedom within Waterstone for people to believe that the earth was created in seven days and freedom for some to believe, no, that's not how it happened at all. God worked through separate ages. Yeah, there's freedom because it's not essential. What you believe about that isn't going to determine your relationship with Jesus. So we agree to disagree. How about women in leadership? Essential or non-essential? Important, but non-essential. Don't break fellowship. How about public school or private school or home school or Christian school? And those are important stuff. But you don't break fellowship over that. You have to have convictions about it. You can talk about it. You can wrestle with it. But it's not more important than your essential unity in Jesus. We've got to make those distinctions because that's part of how we preserve our unity. I think we've lost the fine art of disagreement in the church. You know, the, the whole notion is that in this little diagram, the whole notion is that our relationship with each other should be so strong 
that it would allow us to disagree and wrestle without that impacting how we feel about each other and our essential unity in Jesus. And that's what Paul is pushing them to. He's saying, don't let ideas be divisive. And then he moves on. i got to turn this off. <coughs> he said, not only can't ideas be divisive, but, but leaders shouldn't be divisive. Look at, at verses 11 and 12. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, we don't know who Chloe was, probably didn't live in Corinth but had heard about what's going on. Household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. The word for quarrels here is really emotional, hot, angered fights. I mean, they're going after it. Notice why. What I mean is one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And still another says, I follow Christ. They they have fallen into valuing these personalities and attaching themselves. And they're thinking, you know, Paul is the one who planted this church. I'm, he's my man. He's the guy I'm going to follow. After all, he's our, our roots. And another said, no, 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 Apollos. Apollos was this great orator, this great speaker. You, you get introduced to him in Acts. I mean, he was just eloquent. And these people said, no, I like to listen to Apollos. Man, he really is transformative for me. He's the guy I, I want to follow after him. And then somebody else said, no, no, I follow Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Another name for Peter. And I want to follow Peter because, man, he walked with Jesus. Paul and Apollos never walked with Jesus. Let's follow Peter. And then the, the really spiritual people, what well, we follow Jesus. Christ. I follow Christ. And, and Paul says, wait a second, what are you doing? Now it's interesting, the problem isn't with these leaders. The problem is with the people. They're making too much of the way these guys lead and speak and their style of leadership. Now, people still do that today. We have this tendency to get attached to to leaders and personalities and fall into this kind of Christian celebrityism. And when we do that, what happens is rather than seeing a Christian leader as just one voice among many, we begin to put them on a pedestal. And we begin to identify with that leader because we think we can get value out of association. So we associate with that leader and that tribe and we think, oh, that's going to make us important because I'm a follower of Paul or I'm a follower of Paulus. And really what is at stake is our own ego. In fact, that's what's behind this. Paul says... I, 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 I follow. It's your ego that's getting involved. In fact, that's why he says, you know, there's no room for for boasting. Our ego gets involved and we begin attached to these people. So, you know, I'm a MacArthurite or I like Bill Hybels or I like Tim Keller or I like John Piper. Or I, I really like, you know, Andy Stanley. He's got it all nailed and we identify with him. And then you know what happens? We put these guys on pedestals and we begin to confuse spirituality and giftedness. And in our culture, we think if somebody is really a good speaker and is articulate and eloquent, then they must be really, really spiritual. There is no connection between your ability to speak and how spiritual you are. Now, I'm not saying if you're a good speaker, you're not spiritual. Or if you're spiritual, you're not a good speaker. They're just not connected. 
I can remember growing up, going to a series of sermons that were the most transformative sermons I've ever heard. And I later found out that the guy who gave them was living in adultery. But man, those sermons changed my life. Giftedness is not equal to spiritual maturity. They're disconnected. One is just how the Holy Spirit has wired somebody to use them in the, in the kingdom, in the church. The other is your obedience and your loving of other people. You know, and then what falls into this whole thing for us is this ingrained consumerism. I mean, our, our culture, we want to be entertained. So if a speaker is entertaining and the experience is cool, man, we gravitate to that as if it's, it's something special. Maybe special or not special. I am so tired of people when I talk to them about a speaker telling me, oh, it was just so funny. I'm glad it's funny. But I don't know what that has to do with spiritual transformation. <laughs> Apollos was a great speaker. He was incredibly eloquent. Do you know Paul bored people to death? Literally. Some guy fell asleep, fell out of the window when Paul was preaching and died. <laughs> Book of Acts. I'm not joking. In fact, one of the things the Corinthians are irritated about is that Paul is so boring. And he just didn't have an impact because he wasn't very eloquent. What? We're confused. Do we want fluff? Or do we want substance? Do we want transformation? Or are we just interested in style? And you see, transformation comes out of the gospel and the cross not the giftedness of the speaker. So Paul launches into this argument of why they shouldn't be divided around leaders. Uh, verses 13 through 17. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I think, God, I did not baptize any of you except Christmas and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the whole household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyway. Notice what he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's an interesting comment. What's he saying? He's saying, look, let me tell you why you shouldn't be divided over leaders. First of all, Christ can't be divided. He can't be partitioned out. He can't be apportioned a, a, a out. Uh, when you come to Jesus, you're part of one body and you can't divide and say, well, I've got a part of Jesus and I've got a part. No, he's not divided. He's one, so you have to be one. And then he pushes the father. He says, look, it, did Paul die for you? Is that who was on the cross hanging for yourself? No, Jesus was. He's the one who died for you. And you were baptized into his name. And that day when you got baptized... It was a declaration of allegiance, both to the community you were a part of, but to the one whose name you were baptized in. So when people got baptized, they were saying, hey, I am giving my life to follow King Jesus. And Paul said, you know, when you got baptized, you didn't get baptized into my name. I'm not the one you gave your loyalty to. That was Jesus. So, so how can you divide over these leaders? 
And then his last point is ultimately the power to change lives and transform is in the cross. Not the giftedness of a leader or a speaker. In fact, Paul says, you know, sometimes when when the speaker is so eloquent, it actually takes away from the power of the cross. First time I I realized this whole dynamic about what really is transformative, I, I went to the Billy Graham crusade. It was 1985, I think. It was down at the ballpark. I'd never seen Billy Graham in person. Went there. And honestly, he got up and spoke, and, and, and I was really disappointed. Um, I heard how an incredible speaker was. Maybe he just had an off night, but, but the message was a little bit pedantic. It, it, it was boring. It just, I thought, I don't get it. Why? Do, why? And then I understood because he gave the invitation and, and kind of the floodgates of heaven opened up, man, and people just went forward. And I thought to myself, this has nothing to do with him. This has everything to do with the power of the gospel. You don't mishear me. I'm not, you know, who am I to say Billy Graham's a bad speaker? That wasn't my point. The point is there's times he was great and times he wasn't, but it was almost irrelevant to the transformative impact the gospel had because of the cross. That's what changes people's lives. You know, folks, it's because of this passage, it's one of the reasons we have a preaching team. Um, because one, the, I think it's really good to hear different voices, to have Larry and me and Danielle and Dave preach. You get a different perspective on the Christian life. I think that's incredibly healthy for our church. Uh, um, Part of it is we never wanted this church to be built around a personality. We wanted it to have Jesus as its center and this vision of the kingdom as its motivating factor. And we wanted people to buy into that. Not into me or Larry or anybody else. And we think it's just been a really good thing because it reinforces this notion that, that, that preaching is just a gift. If you haven't figured this out, let me clue you in. Larry and I, or at least me, can say this about me, I'm no more spiritual than anybody else in this room. Broken, messed up, bad decisions, uh, do stupid things. I have a gift, I think, to preach, but that gift doesn't mean I'm super spiritually mature. It just doesn't work that way. So the point is, don't get attached. I mean, some of you love Larry. I love Larry. I love listening to Larry. I like listening to him better than I listen to me because I can listen to him. I can't listen to me. Well, I could, but it's it kind of, I know what he said. So... I mean, I love it. If you love Larry and you, you know, you're disappointed that I'm speaking, that's great. Listen to him. I love him too. Some of you, like me, believe it or not, it's irrelevant, but it happens. And the point is, both of us, I believe, God uses to bring about change in people's lives and further his kingdom. And we're very different. God uses Danielle and God uses David. 
That's why Billy wasn't up here. Billy's here, by the way. Did you know that? CJ wasn't leading just because Billy's not here. No, CJ was leading because we're committed to developing leaders, and it's healthy to have different worship leaders because it's not about the person. It's not about the gift. It's about the gospel and the cross and what Christ is going to do. You know, quite honestly, one of the best things about Waterstone that I love the most is that Larry's on staff, and we've been together 15 years. Over that, because he's strong where I'm weak. And we make a pretty good team together. And this ministry without the two of us wouldn't be what it is today. Because God uses both. And it's not about the leaders. It's about the gospel and the kingdom. So the church is to be unified because of common relationship with Jesus, and that means there's to be no division around ideas or leaders. So the question is, what kind of church will we be? Will we be a church that focuses on the majors or argues about the minors? Will we be a place uh, of unity and focus and impact? Or will we allow our energy to be drained off by controversy and division and criticism? And what kind of people will we be? Will we be those people who are pouring in to the vitality of Waterstone? Or will we be punching holes that drains it of its energy? What will we be? Let me leave you with a proverb and a question, then CJ is going to come and uh, lead us in our closing song. The proverb is this, two ants do not fail to pull one grasshopper. have to think about that. And the question is, what can God do through us for his kingdom if we are one? I really believe if we're unified, he can use us to change the world. Amen?